Hey guys, I'm Dia Jane. I'm Mega Govindu. And I'm Zach Janzura. And welcome to the second episode of our podcast. Financeology, aka how to grow your money. Yeah, so today we wanted to discuss how one of the largest factors continuing the cycle of poverty in our country is a lack of financial awareness coupled with our deeply rooted systemic racism. Yeah, so before we really start this talk about systemic racism and how it really impacts minority groups in the United States, I wanted to um, basically say like the formal definition I found. So in 1999, Sir William Macpherson, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, but he defined <laughs> systemic racism as, and this is really long, the collective failure of an organization to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their color, culture or ethnic origin. So I think it's kind of interesting that he mentioned color, culture and ethnic origin because we usually think of racism as just like the kind of like physical features, you know, because people are like, oh, this isn't racism because it doesn't really have to do with race, but it is discrimination of culture as well or ethnic origin as well. And I think that's what people fail to realize because like, you know, the dictionary definition is just like superiority over another yeah. race. So I think people like to always use that, but they don't really understand the full. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. That, that was like a first part, so there's more. Okay, so then oh, they say, yeah. it can be seen or detected in processes, attitudes, and behavior that amount to discrimination through prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness, and racist stereotyping, which disadvantage minority ethnic people. That was a pretty meaty um, definition. So in our own terms, we kind of defined it as part of the system, policy and government, and not just our personal biases. And it can only be fixed through policy change. Yeah, and I think that's really different from um, like personal racism, where basically it's just how you think. I think the issue with systemic racism is that's like deeply rooted in the institution. So basically right. saying like, the government itself has these certain policies and these certain groups that make it harder for minority groups to actually build their wealth and break out of this poverty cycle. Right, exactly. it's, it's a power thing. Yeah, um, exactly. So now now let's talk about um, why, why is institutionalized racism such a problem? So um, discrimination in criminal justice, um, employment, housing, healthcare, and political power, education, and way more issues. There's discrimination in those areas. Um, and so I'll just give an example. Let's say Dia, you just moved into a beautiful house. Yeah, you I love did. it. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I love my new house. Um, so yeah, it's awesome, right? Um, so now imagine if your loan wouldn't get approved to buy the house just because of the color of your skin. And I feel like living in the Bay, like we're so sheltered and we're so privileged just because we kind of live in a bubble. Um, and I think like because of that, a lot of us don't really recognize that some people actually don't get their loans approved because of their ethnic origin or their racial exactly. Oh yeah, totally. It's really important to recognize that because like, I think, and, I, and yeah, I just think like privilege is such a big issue. Yeah. Like, yeah. If we no, and you know, yeah, go ahead. No, yeah, I was just gonna say that like you were talking about our bubble, but the, the, the other fact is, even in our, even in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. there's such a huge wealth disparity, you know? Um, like if you go into kind of uh, more of like the East Bay, San Jose, Hayward, and, and you look at some of the neighborhoods there, whereas if you go to like, oh, uh, I know people are gonna have, yeah, people are gonna <laughs> argue about where the Bay is, you know, where <laughs> the Bay ends, but like 
if you go into like the South Bay, like it's yeah. like everyone there is like the housing there and things like that. You can see there's such a huge disparity. So people don't think like we live in such an area because oh we're a progressive state, we're a progressive area, but no, it's actually it's still impacting even this area. So imagine how bad it is in um, other states. But what we kind of wanted to go into is how does the cycle continue? You know, because some of the stuff we're talking about started way back in like the early 1900s.、Mm-hmm. So how does it still impact people of color to this day? Um, so yeah, we want to talk a little bit more about that, and we also just wanted to say that it does mainly target the Black and Latinx communities, which is something to take note of, because sometimes people like to rope people of color in together. But it's also important to recognize that like Indigenous,、um, Black, and Latinx communities suffer like the most. And we also wanted to discuss the five financial literacy topics, sticking with our you know finance theme. Mm-hmm. That are abused by the United States to to kind of perpetuate these oppressive institutions. So the first is wealth. The second is employment. The third is housing. The fourth is education, and the fifth is insurance and healthcare. We'll start with wealth. So、um, according to the survey of consumer finances, a white family wealth was almost seven times greater than black family wealth, and five times greater than Hispanic family wealth. So that's like a huge disparity, and this is actually higher than it was in 1963. So Dude, this, been, the disparity is getting farther. Yeah, it's crazy. It's been almost 60 years since then. Like you、yeah. would imagine, the United States is getting to a more progressive era where we're、right. fighting for equality, everyone's equal. Um, but I think I think it's really because in- not a lot of people know that it's getting worse. Right. Exactly. Right when when we were you know researching this and I was just it's it's mind blowing because a whole sixty years、um, and and it's gotten worse so yeah no I yeah. definitely agree with you and I just wanted to kind of revisit what Dia said about how we feel as the as a society we're really progressing towards equality but that's the whole like that's the whole power of systemic racism it's that no matter how. Far we progress as individual, like citizens of a society. No matter how much we're push- pushing for change, the the simple fact is that things are getting worse, whether we like it or not,、mm-hmm. simply because of the system and not because、right. of our individual biases. And like because of this huge disparity, these families aren't even able to build emergency funds. Emergency、right. funds, for those who don't know what that is, it's basically money that you store in case of any、mm-hmm. like big issue, like. Um, for example, if you get into a car accident and you need a ton of money, or for healthcare bills, and so if you aren't able to build an emergency fund, then、mm-hmm. all that money just goes towards the necessities. And like, in, if you do get into like a huge trouble, like a car crash or whatever, you're basically screwed. Like, what are you gonna、yeah. do? Because you're gonna have no money whatsoever. No, yeah, that's a really valid point. And I think we're gonna talk about. We mentioned insurance being one of our five categories. So yeah, we're gonna talk about that a little later. Um, but、mm-hmm. also, I just wanted to add to Dia's point about、um, money they can put in a fund or a savings account.、Um, one way this actually continues the cycle is that they aren't able to invest in maybe their children's education.、Yeah. Maybe their child is a first gen and they don't have the money to put in a savings account.、Right. So again, that limits their、um, educational opportunities、right. and everything, and that again perpetuates this this crazy, crazy, crazy cycle. So right, yeah, all these、really、topics are they're more or less connected, right? So wealth,、um, education, it all affects you know they all affect each other.、Um, and, exactly. Right, but the over 
you know, the overarching point we're trying to make is there's a huge disparity in um, wealth and income. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, and Black people have and Latinx people have not been able to build their wealth for centuries in this country. Exactly. Yeah, yeah so yeah, kind of on that. Oh, go ahead, Dia. No, no, I was just saying like kind of going, he was talking about income. So next our topic was employment. Um, so I have a question for you guys. How the hell do you expect anyone to build wealth and save money if you don't even have a steady income? And like, exactly. And and that's a, and that's questions these minority groups are being faced with every day. And so, a lot of people think that okay, so wealth and income are going to be directly proportionate, but that's actually a common misconception. Just yeah. Because two families with the same income doesn't mean that they have equal wealth. And so that's going back to the point that white families usually have more accumulated wealth from past income or inheritances. Exactly, exactly. And like, yeah, I just wanted to like kind of remind everyone of kind of like the origins of our country where white people were able to, you know, immigrate here and build um, lives for themselves and they were able to afford living here and things like that. You know, indigenous people who already lived here, they were kind of uh, forced into like this whole like European economy type thing and then um, a slavery also was a huge thing as everybody knows and that's basically forced migration so these ethnic groups really did not have uh, the opportunity to even build that generational or accumulated wealth that Dia was talking about even though um, they were basically in this country for like the same amount of time so yeah this issue goes back way back to like centuries like to the founding founding years of our country we're still feeling the effects of exactly. slavery today. Exactly, because yeah. black unemployment rate is two times of white people. And mm-hmm. that's insane, like two times. But yeah, mm-hmm. and like that is definitely credited to different industrial distribution, which is basically talking about like what types of jobs people have or the skills gap. But like if you're using skills gap as a defense, that's also because of education and the fact that um, these groups yeah. aren't being given proper education. Oh, but another really crazy statistic I found online was that white sounding names get 50% more callbacks for interviews in comparison to black sounding names. And that is when the resumes are completely identical. Oh my God. Yeah, so you can, you guys can see for yourselves, like we don't even have to point out mm-hmm. the crazy amount of kind of forces that are working against um, these, um, Black and Indigenous and Latinx people right. of color. It's, it's it, yeah, it really. And that's just like showing how like internalized racism, like personal bias um, seeps into systemic racism. Um, like with this exactly. loss of your the job opportunities. Um, exactly, like that is not, uh, that is not at all a reflection of any of the, um, the characteristics you have or any of the qualifications you have. So it's just crazy that that's even a thing. And yeah, like to the point that Zach made about internalized racism, me and Dio were kind of talking earlier mm-hmm. about how regardless of what we do as individuals, systemic racism still exists. But that does not, mm-hmm. absolutely, that does not discount the fact that internalized racism also is something that is heavily impacting them and needs to be addressed. Right, yeah. Um, but I kind of wanted tr- to transition into a little a separate sector, housing, which is actually super, super, super important and no one really realizes it. Um, so yeah, so let's just talk about the kind of history of it since I know I wasn't really familiar with it before I even yeah. researched this topic. Um, but basically the housing crisis for the community dates back to the suburbanization after World War II 
And so basically there was a huge population boom, you know, the baby boomer generation, and they needed a lot more housing. So in fact, in the span of 10 years after the war ended, 85% new houses were built in Whoa. suburban neighborhoods. That's crazy. Yeah. So yeah, so basically mortgages were cheaper. There was this huge like ideal white family image being like kind of projected into the media. And you know, it was just like, oh, the perfect dreamy life, no crime rates. Yeah, like uh no people <laughs> of color. Like, and like, and like, the funniest thing is like that's not how suburban life is now. Like I feel like it is. I feel like they were just living in a daydream like I don't know. And no, I, yeah, that's but that's like that's true. That's what I'm saying. That's the, the that was the whole power of the media back then. That like they would put these perfect images of schools, church, parks and like those you know those that classic white picket fence yeah, yeah, yeah. thing yeah what is that what, and what what was that show was it i love lucy from the 50s where basically like lucy was portrayed as like that dumb dumb white wife and like yeah yeah you exactly. know like the, like the perfect image of like um, the domestic wife yeah exactly yeah, exactly mm -hmm. and like oh the housewife is staying at home everyone's mm -hmm. super happy you know but the fact is no like people weren't that happy specifically um black people and that brings me to kind of the point of redlining too so why was it a bad thing why was suburbanization a bad thing um for black people so basically there was a practice called redlining which means they kind of refused to insure mortgages in black communities and how did those black communities form well they were actually pushed into urban projects and not suburbs So the suburbs were all for like the white, the successful traditional white family, while mm -hmm. black people were kind of forced to go to uh to to find cheaper housing in urban projects and and their neighborhoods weren't being invested in, so that led to poor education, you know. Every and no one wanted to move into those neighborhoods, which led to a highly highly segregated um communities. And you know what's actually really interesting is builders who built all white neighborhoods and like specifically rejected black people were actually subsidized so that was an incentive oh. for them to build all white neighborhoods which is still is so crazy and the thing is that segregation caused this tying back to the wealth disparity mm -hmm. it kind of like perpetuated that and that still has a modern impact today if you look at certain like like Harlem um like the Bronx all those very those are still urban project neighborhoods and those still exist today because of redlining Yeah, and like this whole practice was kind of um based on the National Housing Act of 1934, which was part of FDR's um New Deal and the New Deal was basically a project to kind of revamp America after um World War II. And so kind of just understanding that it was the government like the way Mega was talking about subsidizing the people the government mm -hmm. made a really heavy hand in making sure that minority groups stayed out of suburbia and making sure that the poor neighborhoods could not kind of move in with the affluent white neighborhoods and just kind of right. stay exactly apart. yeah it was essentially it sounds... like um only it only worked for white people Yeah, exactly. And cuz it sounds crazy when you think about it. Like, how were they allowed to do this? How were they allowed to just blatantly mm -hmm. separate people based on the color of their skin and blatantly only invest in the white neighborhoods? 
But the fact is, the government, like they were saying, the government endorsed that, and that was the reality back then. Right. And nothing could be done about it because it was a systemic issue. I mean, only reason the government kind of made this a rule is because they said that, oh, minority groups were risky investments. And why were they risky investments? Basically saying that black people were criminals or the Latinx community were criminals. And we obviously know that's not true. Like That is completely not right. true. Exactly. That's so exactly. stupid. <laughs> like, I mean, like, it's so stupid. Like, if you like, a politician, like endorse that like that's so stupid right. exactly and and you know they weren't even be allowed to get like loans just because of the color yeah. of their skin it's so, so bad. they couldn't even move into the suburbs like everything was so crazy and on top of that with the whole red line thing i just talked about like it was just like a terrible it was a nightmare for them basically um mm -hmm. yeah so they weren't really able to make a life for themselves here they weren't able to back to the wealth thing accumulate their wealth it was just a whole I should show. And like one thing I wanted to add to that, so um, redlining, I know that a lot of people might think that, oh, maybe they didn't do it with the government knowing. No, like the government said that you're supposed to rate neighborhoods on a scale of A to D. And based on that, decide whether or not these houses do get loan or these neighborhoods do get loan approvals. So basically like the government was encouraging redlining. Exactly. And the thing is, the policy didn't specifically say rate the rate the neighborhoods based on race. But the thing is, that's what happens. And that's the problem with systemic racism is that in the law itself, maybe nothing's mentioned about race, but the implications of the policy is where the real danger is. Exactly. And that's where you can literally find loopholes of ways to use a seemingly non-racist law yeah. to actually, you know, perpetuate racism and we know we know who loves using loopholes the most <laughs> our president <laughs> <laughs> so zach would you want to kind of talk to us about how education also plays a role in this yeah totally so um i'll start off um as we all know school segregation um it, which is now illegal. Um, in 1954, the Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court ruling determined that school segregation was unconstitutional. However, um, systemic racism has never left our schools. So schools still followed um, neighborhood boundaries and these schools were only funded by property taxes. So poor neighborhoods essentially um, got less funding for their schools and so education there was not as good. Can someone define property taxes or like explain how it works? Okay, yeah, so it's a, essentially it's a tax on property and uh, that money goes to funding local schools. Got it. Um, yeah, so um, poorer neighborhoods had less funding for their schools and so education there was not as good. And two out of three minorities still go to school in minority predominant schools with little funding, most of them being located in like central cities. Wait, so, um, wait, 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 hold up, Zach, I have a question mm -hmm. for you. So if these schools are located in central city, doesn't that mean that there's more funding available? Because like big bustling cities like San Francisco. Right, that's what you would think. But again, we have to think about the systemic racism um you know processes going back to like redlining um yeah and i just wanted and, to add here like the suburbanization slash urban projects thing right. right and so i actually okay so while you guys were like talking i went on mm -hmm. google and like searched up examples of this with like real schools 
Um, and so there's this high school called East St. Louis Senior High School, and it's located in a predominantly minority neighborhood. And so it's really crazy to see that in their school, their biology lab basically has no lab tables or usable dissecting kits. So like their equipment is basically non-existent. But if you look at their nearby mm -hmm. suburban schools, the schools there, the children enjoy computer lab to study stock transactions in science laboratories that rival those in some industries. Like, wow. imagine being able to like study like Dow oh yeah, like, just... 500 and like the school that's like five minutes away from you doesn't even have like that's insane. It's that... Exactly. No, no, that was yeah, going back crazy. to like that, that kind of like example that I was talking about, yeah. about how like two neighborhoods are so close to each other yet so distinct in like the, the right, kind of wealth yeah. that's going towards their back into their neighborhood and this is literally a real life example so and for anyone yeah. who kind of doubted that and it goes it, it goes Not back exactly. to redlining where they yeah. would it's so rigid how they would just define the boundaries and then whatever's on this side doesn't get an investment and whatever's over here gets an investment and it, exactly. it goes back to that it's the property taxes um yeah and that's why these schools aren't being funded and it's it's just it's so unfair and the it's the disparity is crazy because these are schools we, are so close to each other and so vastly different how are we exactly. supposed to fix this um yeah okay, so well, we, we can talk about that now that um, can go ahead about yeah Zach has a few <laughs> suggestions i know so, so. <laughs> um historically and statistically students perform better if they're educated in smaller schools, um, so the optimal number is somewhere between 300 and 500, um, which as you guys know, our personally, our school, the one that we go to is like four times that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, love a no, but like that's literally true though, because if you look at all those private schools and stuff and like the schools where yeah. people are like, oh, everyone there goes to an Ivy and you have to pay to go type thing. Yeah. Those schools, their class sizes are so small and it actually mm -hmm. benefits them a lot because um, they have like good relationships with their teachers, mm -hmm. um, good access to like mentorship and obviously resources aren't being able like aren't they don't have to divide it between so many students yeah, everyone right. gets, gets a textbook everyone, everyone gets access to exactly everyone gets access to it um so yeah, yeah. and it benefits every single student in there no like I right so what you brought up with the smaller class sizes that's actually the next thing um yeah. that i had on my list which is yeah smaller class sizes so um and this is especially effective at like elementary level um because littler kids actually work better having a closer connection to their teacher so smaller class sizes are, are actually really important yeah um yeah, cause yeah. Like, wait let me ask you guys when you were in kindergarten how many kids were in your classes i had like 35. dude i think mine was like 25 or 40. i don't know I had a lot, though. that's a lot dude for our elementary school you can't have like above 30 kids yeah, that's good. No, like for us, it was yeah. thirty to thirty-five, and I feel like it'd be much better if there were like maximum of twenty. Like, now that I think about mm -hmm. it, I Wait, kind you guys of have, like, feel like I think my kindergarten class was like my biggest class at you know in terms of students, but also in terms of like the room was actually really big too. Um, 
Even we literally had our own bathroom in there. It was great. Even, oh, so did we. We had our own bathroom. Dude, even in high school, like, some of my classes have so many kids. Mm-hmm. Literally all my classes do. Okay, well, we're getting so, off topic, but basically, uh, yeah. um, back we'll talk about the, the next thing. Um, yeah, back to back to our list. Um, the next thing is challenging curriculum. So, essentially, if the curriculum is too easy, right, nobody's going to learn anything. Mm-hmm. And if it's too hard, people are just going to be incentivized to cheat. And then they're also not going to learn anything. So, it's a, a happy medium where students are challenged um, at a healthy level, but not like overly challenged and not underly challenged. <laughs> that yeah, so, that like, is also cliche, true. But, no, no, um, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. And with the challenging curriculum, you also want, you know, high quality teachers who who actually uh, challenge their students as well and, and have their the oh, yeah. best interests of their students in mind. Totally. Um, I did want to kind of bring up again like the racial disparity because i know we were talking about solutions but i also wanted to kind of bring that up um just because even though black students only make up 16 percent of like overall enrollment 27 percent of them are uh, referred to law enforcement which is crazy oh. because they're kids oh in high school right and like yeah. if you think about yourself oh for cheating what would i do i'd probably get a detention mm-hmm. um like i'd probably right. have to talk to like my school my parents but for them, even even like minor infractions yeah. can result in serious punishment. So yeah, like, like totally. let's just, I just want to throw out another number. So black students are actually three times more likely to be suspended than white students for the same infraction. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, yeah, like think and, about that. And, and right, if you think about what's going to happen if like one of us cheated, you never, you know, yeah. you never know how different your punishment will be than that of a black student and it's yeah and this is again like the internalized racism um and and the thing is once you just kind of enter that system of prison and law enforcement it's really mm -hmm. hard to get out of it and like that's one of the biggest issues that face like minority groups because once they kind of get into like that system like there are no resources or help to kind of get out of there and yeah. so most people um, kind of just like stay in there and think like, oh, um, I have no hope in life. I'm not going to get a better education. Like this is the only yeah. way to make money. This is kind of my life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And their education, even if you are being referred to law enforcement, that as a kid, that has number one, a lot of psychological effects on you. Number two, it actually does impact your education. So you truly don't think that there's a way out. Um, and then number three, like Dia was saying, it kind of does back to this whole theme of cycle that we kind of have going on in our little discussions. It perpetuates that cycle because once they get into the system yeah. as a kid, they're 18 times more likely to go back into the system as adults. And that oh creates God. another huge, huge cycle yeah. um, that That's kind of ties insane. back everything in together. Times. 18 yeah, times exactly. more likely than whites. It's crazy. Exactly. It's Yeah, it is crazy because that's, that's the importance of it. Like people think that, oh, maybe all this stuff happens in later life. Oh, black black people commit more crime, which is definitely not true. It's disproven. Yeah. Um, but the fact is, it, it does start at a very very young age when the kids aren't responsible for what happens to them. It is just the systemic racism we have in this country. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the last topic that we wanted to mention was insurance or healthcare. So 
let's first talk about car insurance. Um, I'm gonna use you two as an example, even though I know neither of you have your permit, so mm -hmm. that thing you guys driving is gonna be ah. Oh, wow. wow. Says the person who drove without a permit. But no, 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 no. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> okay, so let's imagine Zach lives in like Beverly Hills, like 90210, super rich neighborhood, everyone knows. And let's say like your insurance provider <laughs> is like Allstate, okay? And so Allstate's like, okay, Zach lives, Zach is anyways white, so like, well, he's not gonna do anything. He lives in a super rich neighborhood. <laughs> no crime happens there, he's chilling. Now let's take Mega for example. Mega lives in a more um, minority-ridden neighborhood. It's smaller, it's not as popular, not as famous. Mm -hmm. You don't have celebrities walking there all the time. And what's really crazy is that their insurance premium is going to be completely different even though zach and mega let's just say that they're just as good drivers and that's mm -hmm. the problem because that's how it really affects like the black community because a study done by the consumer federation of america literally proved that black people end up paying 80 percent more on insurance premium and companies like um, Allstate Travelers, Metropolitan, um, Pekin, Auto Owners, like they literally admitted that they were charging 30% higher on average in risky minority zip codes than in non-minority zip codes. And that's just really messed up because if you anyways don't have as high of an income as those living like Beverly Hills, and then you're also taxed higher, or not taxed, but you have to pay more on- Pay more. Premiums, then basically like, it's really hard to actually get money to kind of build your wealth build your wealth back into yeah. the right economy. and again it's the same same thing that they're paying higher for yeah exactly like and i just want to point out with what dia said um they they are charging higher on average in mm -hmm. minority zip codes with the same or similar risk than non-minority zip codes so it's not even like yeah. oh this neighborhood is a more uh, accident prone than this neighborhood they both have similar risks but they they're still charging uh, they're still charging people from the minority neighborhoods higher, which is like that just shows clear unfairness for anyone who would like to argue that like, oh, it is actually more accident prone. No, even if they're both similar, like even if they both have similar risk levels, um, they still have to pay more. And like Dee was saying, again, back to our whole cycle theme, if they are making less money and they already have so many obstacles that prevent them from accumulating their wealth. And on top of that, they actually have to pay more for necessities like, you know, owning a car. Um, which gets them to their jobs, which is essential in you know today's world. How do you really expect them to have economic upward mobility? You don't. That's that's the whole issue that we're trying to like address here. And then like moving on to like health insurance. So an average family spends around eighty two hundred dollars. That's like eleven percent of family income on like, healthcare, and that includes emergency bills, um, prescription pills, office visits, all of that stuff. Uh, but for African Americans it's actually 20%. And so kind of going back to the fact that it's already hard for these families to accumulate wealth. And so if they have to pay even more for health insurance, then how are they expected to kind of build their wealth and break this cycle of poverty? Um, and yeah, and then like also the fact that in minority ridden neighborhoods, there's less private clinics. And so majority of the people there actually are um, insured by Medicaid or Medicare and that means that they don't have access to like really good health care and so 
they just have a higher immortality rate and yeah exactly that's that's very 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 a valid point all right now let's talk about what does all this mean for the financial literacy levels of these minority groups so like the systemically oppressed yeah, I really mm -hmm. hope you guys notice how it's a cycle. It all feeds into each other. Wealth feeds into employment, which feeds into um, education. education. Mm -hmm. um, insurance, which feeds into housing. Housing feeds back into education. Like, it's literally a cycle, and it's so hard to break that cycle. Exactly, and right. within those five topics we mentioned, there is another cycle that's preventing them from getting out of it. Because I know some people like to argue, oh, uh, the the model minority myth. Oh, if they succeeded, why can't you? But we, yeah. the, the object of this, this kind of discussion was to show you guys that it isn't something that they can control and that there are a lot of systemic right. forces at work that are preventing them from getting out of this hamster wheel. Yeah. Yeah. And like the, like you said about the model minority, it's important to note, like people who use that as an example have to realize that, um, it's not that they aren't what's holding them back. That's, exactly that's it's a terrible terrible so. argument to make so yeah yeah but right. um yeah back to like it's um implications on financial literacy um do one of you kind of want to take us through what that means yeah so one measure of financial literacy is through this five question test and so the topics that are covered in this um there are five so there's relationship between bonds and interest rates there's compound interest diversification of stocks um, real rates of returns and loan maturity. So when um, this test was taken, it was kind of divided by race. And so when whites took it, they scored a whole 12% higher on that test than minorities. That is a huge, wow. I don't think you guys, some of you may not understand, like realize a thing or think that that's like a huge number, but it really, really, really is. And yeah. that ties back into every single issue we discussed but yeah okay so moving on i know we kind of this is a very kind of like heavy discussion where we talked yeah. about a lot of issues that we face but what can we do or what what can our country do to kind of level the playing field um promote financial literacy to every single group and kind of reduce this this terrible systemic like oppression that minority groups face Thank you so much for following our discussion on the effects of systemic racism on the minority groups in america if you would now like to hear the solutions to this problem, please listen to part two of this episode. As always, stay tuned to Financeology to learn everything your school doesn't teach, from budgeting for the new shoe drop to deciding which credit card to apply for. We're excited to have you here as we navigate our money-centric world, one episode at a time.